He describes Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the building. Remember from last week, remember we talked about the purpose of the cornerstone, is the cornerstone is the stone that sets the absolute for the entire building. Everything else comes around that cornerstone, and if they do it right, and that cornerstone is perfect, which Christ is, then everything else lines up perfect. That's why, again, we heard the mention of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, the apostles as the foundation. That's the first part that is poured around a cornerstone, the foundation, and it must be perfectly aligned with the cornerstone, because if you don't have it aligned with the cornerstone, your building might look a little diagonal, right? Which can be problematic. And so Peter gives us that picture that this is what we are, this is what we've become, and this is how not only do we receive love, we receive love in order to love by coming to the cornerstone, taking our place as living stones, being built into this temple where we worship God. And we're reminded that we indeed not only are living stones, but we're a royal priesthood offering up the sacrifices of ourselves for the sake of one another and for the sake of the world back to Christ as a love offering. And so we continue in chapter 2 today and in this portion of St. Peter, St. Peter is going to teach us about a theme that began, that he certainly heard from Christ and began with Christ's teachings. Jesus, in the Gospel of St. John in chapter 17, he says this. He's praying to the Father for all of his people, there with him and the future. And he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, you've heard the phrase, we live in this world, but not of this world. This is what Jesus is praying, and this is what St. Peter is going to go to. Because remember, again, he's addressing these people in the face of persecution, and he's calling them to continue being what Christ has always ordained the church to be in this world, but not of this world. How do we live as the church? We are to be a holy people separated unto God, separated unto God, and yet living and dwelling in this world, but not by the world's fallen morality, not by the world's fallen order, not by the world's fallen ethics. The kingdom of God has a perfect virtue morality all of its own, a perfect order and perfect ethics in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, who has 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12? Hillary, I think you have that. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God and the day of visitation. Thank you. So he says it right there. We're sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, first and foremost, who for a time and a vapor of a time must live and journey through this fleeting life on our way to the perfect and eternal kingdom of God. 
beyond the veil of the flesh of this world. The fathers talk about the church, when they speak about it, having to live in an in-between reality. Let me read to you one of them, St. Augustine. St. Augustine says this, God's people occupy the middle ground. They are to be compared neither with those who think that the only good is to enjoy earthly delights, nor with those sublime inhabitants of heaven whose sole delight is in the heavenly bread which they were created. Between the people of heaven and those of earth, the apostle speaking of St. Peter, was suspended in the middle, heading toward heaven. Though he was not there yet, but at the same time separated from others here below. A sojourner, a pilgrim is what St. Peter calls us to be. And it's those who live in one place, although they belong to another. It's critical we understand this. Those who live in one place, as, but though they belong to another. Father Lawrence Fairley puts it this way. He says, Christians can always be recognized by the natives as foreigners. I like that phrase. Christians can always be recognized by the natives as foreigners. St. Peter urges his hearers to recognize that since their baptism... They now no longer fit in with the pagan culture surrounding them. And what is this pagan culture? It's the culture given, given over to self. Given over to the flesh, to fleshly lusts, after things non-eternal that damage the soul. Alright, all of us have known foreigners in our midst. All of us Americans. And let me ask you a question. Is it fairly easy most times to recognize a foreigner? Why is it easy to recognize a foreigner when you, when you meet them or hear them or are around them? Why? How, how do you know? Different in what ways? Their language. Their, their language? Dress. Their dress. Yeah. Uh, going along with, with language... Even if they have embraced the English language, perhaps an accent gives away that they they were not born and raised here like we were. Right? Their culture and their attitude. Their culture and their attitude towards things. And, yeah. yeah and, uh, and this is just kind of my opinion. The language and culture go together. If you know someone's language, yep. then you can know them all the better. No, that's the truth. And, and you, I find uh, as well, going along with that, when, when I deal with folks that I know are not from America, they've come over here, and I spend some time with them, it's very noticeable, the cultural differences. That is the way that they perceive life, the way that they perceive relationships, the way that they perceive going about things on a daily basis, you know? It is uniquely different to the to our upbringing. They were brought up a certain way, and it's noticeable. And I would tell you this. Christians, no matter what country they live in, are to be like the foreigners. This is what St. Peter is saying. People around us ought to notice difference. Difference in language. Hmm? Difference in perspective in the way that we approach things. 
different perspective on life itself and how we go about our daily work, our daily chores, our daily life, our family life. There is something about us that is quite frankly to smell different than all others. Why? Because we are a people of a kingdom that is not even of this world. It has come to this world to rescue those in this world, but to bring us to a place that is eternal where all things here are finite. We are a people of an eternal kingdom of God under a king who shares all of his benefits of the kingdom with us. People ought to notice these things. People ought to notice these things. And that's how St. Peter is calling those in Rome at that time and indeed calling us to live as Christians. The second thing he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We've heard this from the fathers time and time again. Here, St. Peter is speaking of what the fathers call the passions. In us all are passions. Passions are not, it's, it's, we very quickly differentiate between being passionate. We ought to be passionate about our Lord Jesus Christ, passionate about our spouses, passionate about our families, passionate about our convictions. But passions that the fathers speak of and the fleshly lusts that St. Peter is speaking of are not that type of being passionate. They're the things that war against the soul. Why? Because they are the cravings of the flesh that desire things non-eternal as if those non-eternal things could ever satisfy us now. And think about it. Anything that we pursue that's outside of the kingdom of God, you look at it, anything that we pursue trying to grasp on temporary satisfaction cannot be anything other than temporary satisfaction and a letdown. The passions are like sugar. Right? While they give you a real boost in the moment, you crash. And you crash hard on the back end. And so St. Peter is telling us we are to overcome those passions through repentance and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Those passions are the very things that do indeed end up forming various addictions. By the way, addictions don't just have to be drugs and alcohol and sex. We get addicted to a lot of things. Means of behavior. Things that we think we need that we don't. People can get addicted to entertainment. You know? People can get addicted to having to be entertained. Look at the, look, when I say look at the youth, I don't mean like high school. You, you look at the, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw it out, maybe even the 40 and under crowd, and they are addicted to things because they temporarily satisfy, hook them, but bring no satisfaction, which is why they have to keep doing them. So we are to be a people that abstain from those things that war against the soul. And instead, St. Peter says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, we're being called to exactly what St. Francis of Assisi says. We all remember this quote. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. When necessary, use words. Our whole life, the way that we go about our daily walk through this life, 
our whole life is to be a proclamation of he who is the resurrection and the life, like we talked about this morning in the homily this morning. So St. Peter is going to now give us a list. He's going to get very practical into the culture of that day, but it speaks to us as well. He's going to give us a practical list of how to conduct yourselves, church, in the midst of various real-life situations. Who has St. Peter 2, 13 through 25? Deacon, I think you've got that. It's a little long, but pay attention. We're going to break it down after he reads it. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience for God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? Take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay, so again we've got again we've got some very practical instructions in day-to-day life that we can take a look at. And the first is this. St. Peter calls everyone as far as how to conduct yourselves in a godly manner in these different circumstances. The first thing he does, he says, submit yourself to the law and to the rulers of the land. I got to tell you, in our humanity, this can become a very tough pill to swallow. Can it? Really? You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say submit yourselves to the law and to the land and its rulers when they are the utmost of righteous. Doesn't say that, does it? It says submit yourselves to the law of the land and its rulers. Now, The one caveat that the church always teaches us is if the law of the land ever goes completely against the virtue of the kingdom of God and calls us to do something against, tries to force us to worship another God, tries to force us into doing things that are against the virtues of the kingdom of God, we stand up because we know whose kingdom we really belong to. But unless that's the case, it isn't about whether you like your leaders or get along with them. 
It has everything to do with submitting to those leaders. St. Andreas points this out. He says, Jesus said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. And St. Andreas says, he goes on to teach about this. He says, this goes beyond money. This goes beyond taxation and tithing. When Caesar, that is that which represents the leadership that we are to submit to, makes laws that do not go against the order of God, we submit, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But when the laws of the land go against God and His virtues, we then we render unto God what is God's, and that stands above all. That's what St. Andreas points out. And why? Because St. Peter says that God is the one who orchestrates all leadership. This is really hard for us to grasp. God is the one who places all leaders in place. I give you St. Paul from Romans, in Romans chapter 13. St. Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I I not only think this, but I get asked this often. How, when you have an immoral leader... And how, when you see across the world immoral leadership, how do we grasp this? How do we grasp this? Part of even the asking of that question, which I struggle with, I I, I see our leadership at times throughout all of my life in this country. I see the leadership of other countries. Some do horrible things. And yet, Paul says God places them. He doesn't cause them to do the horrible things. He places the leadership in place. And um, how, do we, how do we grasp this? How do we see ourselves to recognize that God has placed them? I'll put it to you this way. And maybe this will help. It helps me. You know, sometimes God places leadership over countries for a season of blessing. He really does. And in some ways, it's even a reward to the people of that nation. Perhaps they follow him. And he places people in leadership as a season of blessing to create a time of peace and prosperity in those nations. But have you ever ever thought that God can also allow leadership to take place by his judgment for correction? Right? And sometimes... It ills our taste buds to see how our leadership is behaving. I know it does mine. You know, has for years. To me, I'm still praying for a virtuous leader to step forward, you know, in our country. I don't care where he comes from, you know. And it's a right prayer. But at the same time, God is doing something. And our calling that St. Peter is saying and St. Paul is echoing is we live a life of order. We live a life where we submit to, not only we submit to, but have you ever recognized that in all of our Vespers services and in Mass, we are constantly praying 
for the civil leadership. That's the role of the church. Again, unless the leadership tries to force by law that we do something that is against the kingdom of God, we submit. I also want to say this though. Submitting does not mean that we sacrifice our role to do what I call speak prophetically as the church into our government. And I don't mean by law. I'll give you an example. The Christ, our church, many churches out there, for example, speak against the legalization of abortion. Right? We must speak against something that we know God sees as murder of His creation. We must. Okay? And if they ever tried to force you know, women to have abortions, which has happened in some countries that are trying to control their population, then that person must stand up and refuse. Okay? But as long as it's not coming against directly the kingdom of God, we show our allegiance to God by showing our allegiance to those He's placed in leadership. Whether we like them or not, because our submitting to that and our prayerfulness for our leadership shows forth the virtue of God. Do you get that? And that's what... So yes, Deacon. I was just curious if you had any ideas about the differences between when this was written, which would have been an imperial, you know, yeah. imperial uh, mindset. Yep. And today's modern democracies of in our country and other countries, our country probably is the preeminent one. Uh, you have any, which is a completely different ethos. It is. Uh, you have any ideas as far as that's concerned? Any ideas? I mean, I've got tons of ideas. <laughs> I know I really do, and I know your 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 question is extremely valid. It first and foremost, let me let me put this statement out there. Doesn't matter the style of government, we're, we're called to submit. Okay? We are called to submit to the government at hand. Okay? Um, in that time, you're absolutely right. That area was very much imperial government, right? Democracies would come forth later, but if God said, and if, if, if they are commenting that every soul be subject to the governing authorities for uh, God sets them all in place. And it's not about the system, it's about the God who's over every system. Okay? Um, so that still stays the same. But are you, I want to know what you're thinking. Oh, I know that I am. It just occurs to me that, that we have two entirely different cultures Boy, do we? between when this was written and, and our... our Day and age now. I would say we even have different cultures in our country than when America was started and what it is today as far as how it even sees democracy too, right? I mean, a lot of that has evolved even in our thinking about our own government. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I, and I suspect that uh, that religious thinking had a lot to do with our, 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 uh, our, our revolution in this country. Yeah, in some ways, the, especially religious thinking coming out of enlightenment, the enlightenment time, you know, again, you had, and you could say both ways, because for the, for the longest time, as we all know, the, the, the church was not a democracy. 
you know. But then you also had kind of this merge in thinking in other uh, denominations and so on where, you know, we, we know we call it the congregationalist model of churches where it is very democratic in how things operate. So there certainly was influence that, that came from that into our country as far as the setup of government. The church was not a democracy at all. No, no, it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, and what, De- when, what Deacon's commenting on is, truly there was a blend of influence when it came to setting up a democracy that was religious, based from those who were coming and bringing that to the table, because they were functioning more in a, a, a congregationalist style. You know that, that, and that's very, that's very accurate. It's very accurate. But I. Again, I don't know. I, I, I've not seen anything that turns me and says it makes a, it makes a difference to how we are called to be within. Because remember, we are not of a democracy or an imperialism. We are of the kingdom of God, a kingdom not of this world, above all the governments of this world. How is it that we're to live in that middle ground, like Saint Augustine talked about? You know, where we have to function here. But at the same time, we are ultimately we, our allegiance lies in one place: the kingdom of God, the eternal. Karen, I uh, I began to see a lot of this as I was leaving healthcare, some of the issues that were coming up in healthcare and everything. And I always saw things sort of as I was doing my job, as far as um, doing my job, as far as I could within the guidelines of what I believe God intended. Actions that were taken were correct, but when it got to points that there were things coming down the pipe that they were going to be addressing and putting on our plate as nurses out there representing things, I had to leave jobs. Mm. I had to leave jobs because I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what you have to do. I mean, I think you have to be able somehow, some way, because if you don't, and especially in healthcare today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had young girls say to me, I think I'm going to work in OBGYN. And I'm like, you know what? You need to think about that. Because when you get in that system, you're obligated license-wise to do your duty to the patients, and you cannot abandon a patient. You cannot. But if you're asked to do something within that scope of the practice of that OBGYN unit, you're going to get yourself into practicing abortions. You're going to get yourself into that stuff. So, you know, you better think about it. What's your, what, what, uh, Look at how all in, yeah. You have you have all these other laws that you have to operate under for your license, and yep. you cannot abandon a patient. So if you're assigned a patient with that kind of situation, that's your patient. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to think about it today so much more than you ever ever used to, because healthcare is. And so you're not, and, and now you're, you know, we're, we're moving and we're actually going, right? It's a good segue to the very next part because we're leaving now where we're told to submit to the law and the authorities of the land, which that has a part of, but it filters down into the actual next section that St. Peter goes in. Deacon, I apologize. I hope I answered your question. It's the only thing that came to my mind. And, and uh, ask me further later if you want to for sure, okay? Um, so now we go to the point from the authorities of the government, the rulers of the land. And now we go to the statement, servants be submissive to your masters. That said, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. I want to be quick to say, 
that St. Peter is not saying that certain types of servanthood and certainly slavery like we do in this country is a godly thing. He's not commenting on servanthood. It's a part of where he exists. And so there are Christians that are servants in this social structure that they were all living in. What he's saying is how do you live in that structure? That structure is not going to change right now. How do you represent Christ if we're in this situation? And please remember, in that day and age, it was not so much a slavery situation like we had in America. Okay? And that's not to say that there were not harsh rulers to their servants. But there are also very fair and just folks that had servants in their house. It was a part of the dynamic of that culture at that time. And so St. Peter is speaking into it. Okay? And so he encourages them this way. He says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled did not revile in return. When He suffered... He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, if you, if you find yourself as a servant in an unjust situation, take on the posture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know you could not vote your way out of that. Okay? How do I live in the midst of this? It's not okaying the harsh master. But it says, look to your Lord Jesus Christ as to how you live in those situations. Because how was, was Christ not dealt unjustly? Was Christ not treated harshly? Physically, emotionally, spiritually? Was Christ not dealt in those ways? Then look to Him as the model of how you glorify Him in the midst of such suffering. And by the way, we do know accounts all throughout church history of by those in these types of servanthood situations winning their masters over to the kingdom of God because of their behaviors. Because they humbled themselves, continued as Christ, and endured. And the masters and the families saw this. And we actually saw many conversions. Does that make sense? Now... So that's servants and masters. Well, we don't have that in our culture. Oh, yes, we do. Jobs. Anybody ever had an unjust boss? <laughs> right? Um, one that was unfair. One that mistreated other employees as well as perhaps yourself. The message remains the same. See, our culture tells us to act differently. Our culture is a culture of arrogance, isn't it? It says, stand up for yourself. Now, I want to be very clear where we draw lines, 
Come on. There are abusive situations, physically abusive situations. We, as far you know, I could go into all of it. I don't even want to name some of them. We know we're not talking about that. Let's keep it in the framework of jobs and an unjust situation being mistreated in those things, treated unfairly. The whole idea is the same. We submit ourselves to that. We, we were keeping our jobs and we glorify God. Now the reality is we can go find another job if we like. That's okay. Right? But, what, but if we're in there, how? what is it that demonstrates Christ? Being like Him. Being like Him. Weathering the storm. Not talking back. When He was accused, He didn't feel the need to defend Himself, did He? Because who was going to defend Him? His Father in Heaven. Vengeance is whose, says the Lord. It's mine. Right? And so in those situations, that is how we act and behave. Okay, so now we've got authorities, the government. We've got servanthood, or in our case, authorities in our lives based on jobs. And now we move to the family unit. We're going to be encouraged in back and reminding ourselves of the order that a Christian family, a husband and wife in particular, and holy matrimony are to be joined together to show forth the very nature of the Trinity. Who has 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7? Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merrily outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters, if you are, if you are, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror, husbands. Likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. So a couple things here, husbands and wives. It's nothing that we haven't seen before, we haven't heard before with St. Paul, but I want to very much set a very quick framework that we must be reminded in. Because when you see, for example, wives submit to your husbands, husband, love your wives, honor your wives, and so on, it's the same thing that St. Paul had said. St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says this about holy matrimony. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands. 
love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. When we did a class on the Ephesians, one of the things that we looked at, actually it was 1 Corinthians, I apologize, because the subject came up there. We have to remember the framework of holy matrimony. Because if you look at it in terms of the way our culture likes to look at it, it makes the wives look lesser of a person. And that's not what the church has ever taught. In fact, the church has always, right out in front of all of us, taught the equal personhood of man and woman, different yet joined. And if you remember what I taught in that 1 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that one of the very mysteries in this is all pertained around something our culture can't grasp. And that's this. Our culture cannot grasp a hierarchy of equality. When we think hierarchy, we think inequality. It's the first thing that comes to our minds. Somebody above me. Somebody greater than me. You see? In the kingdom of God, it's not so. In fact, it's even not so as we see in the Holy Trinity, which the marriage is an entire picture of. In the Holy Trinity, we have a hierarchy of equality. Listen to what the creed says. The Father, maker of all things visible and invisible. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, begotten not made of one substance with the Father. And the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son, and there it is, is both glorified, worshipped and glorified. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equals, and yet there, there, there appears to be, as the church says, a hierarchy of such. So it is in a marriage. So it is in a marriage. One of equality of two persons. Just as the three persons in, are, are one. So in the husband and wife relationship, both are one. And there's a reason for this. God created Adam, and from the side of Adam created Eve to come alongside Adam. That the relationship of these two uniquely different persons, the way that they would function together, the man as God to his church, as Paul says, the woman as the church to Christ, and as they come together in this blessedness, it reveals all that God is. That God wants to express Himself through this. And so that's why wives, when it says submit to husbands, it as unto the Lord, Paul says. Because it's the picture given to all of Christ. I mean, of His church submitting unto Christ. And then you have the picture of the man as Christ to the church. The great call to walk in the perfect agape love over the spouse. To care, to protect, to nurture, and to present without blemish. This radiant person of co-equal status that he's been joined to. That is what Paul is saying. And what's also what St. Peter is saying when he says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And he says something interesting. That even if some do not obey the word. In other words, 
there were Christians united to non-Christians. They had, been, they had come and been baptized, but their spouse had not. That even in the way that they live and exist with their husband as the church to Christ, that might turn the husband's heart to the faith. And they might become baptized, which did happen in so many, so many different times. And he goes on and he says, Do not, women, do not let your adornment be merely outward, a huge word, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I want you to lock onto that word merely. He's not saying it's a sin to have an earring. A lot of people take that scripture and roll that way with it. No. It says don't let it be the focus of your life. Don't let the outward, the physical, that which in this body will decay, but one day be resurrected to perfection and adorned with the glory of God. Don't let the focus of your life be on these things. Rather, let the focus of your life be internal. Let it be in the quietness of your soul. Tend to your soul and all the outward expression of the beauty of God comes. That's what he's saying. A lot of people just like to pass over that word merely and say that that St. Peter is, is basically condemning any use of anything on the personhood. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, what's your focus? Okay. And then he gets to the man. And we're going to have to conclude with this. And I'll try to get through this fairly quickly. Then he gets to the man. Again, the man called to be Christ. And there are a lot of people that would look at what is said here. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your spouse, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, let's, talk, let's address the weaker vessel, people. Because it's not what you think. We are very much victims of English translation from Greek here. When you look at weaker vessel, it's as if he's saying, tend to your wives with honor, protect them in their vulnerability. Let me give you an example of this. It goes back to the garden. In the garden, you remember how, who did Satan go to first? Who was vulnerable in that moment? Susceptible. To the deception. Okay? Used her to also get to Adam. Right? Okay. It's that, that's that type of vulnerability. And what is it saying? Is the church, men and women, are we not all vulnerable? In the marriage, you have the picture of the church. The man is Christ, the woman as the church. What is he saying, men? You be like Christ who is the great stronghold that surrounds your wife as one vulnerable. You are the spiritual protection of the vulnerable. That's the picture of Christ. That's the way He is to His church. It's not about when you see weaker, it has nothing to do with lesser. In fact, Father Lawrence Fairley says this. He says, In what does this weakness consist? Surely not in weakness of mind or character, though ancient pagan opinion said so. Rather, 
The weakness consists in extra vulnerability and husbands must respond to this by protecting their wives and caring for them in love. I find it very fascinating that he gets so detailed into all the things of the culture going on right now. Remember again why he's writing this. They're being persecuted. And he's calling them to readjust to the order of God. So that in the midst of all of it, whether you end up being persecuted or not, that God is glorified even to the degree of the family unit. Through the government and the way we deal with it. Through the servants or our jobs or whatever you want to call it. And also in our own homes, God is to be glorified through a perfect order established by Him from the creation of all things. Does that make sense? Hope so. Hope so. Let's stand. Can I say one thing? Absolutely. Okay. Um, It's related.